element. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on the inside, you'll get some notes that go a little deeper into what we're talking about, some questions that you can ask one another to remind you what we talk about today to also kind of you know regurgitate that a little bit and talk through some of those things. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. Uh, you click on More and Then Events in YouVersion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that really goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And we're going to start with some really, really happy verses. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. And it says this, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Yes, so uplifting. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being a gracious and good God who calls us back into relationship with you, who gives redemption and hope and grace and meaning again, and that you would then have our eyes turned to see you and base our lives upon who you are first, surrendered and worshiping of you so that we'd be a people who can actually find some meaning in the rest of the work that we do in the world around us. Teach us to trust you because you are good in all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing a series through the thoroughly fun, if albeit depressing at times, book of Ecclesiastes. I mentioned last week that Ecclesiastes is more than Solomon's life story, though you do get some of Solomon's life story in it. It's about so much more. The writer is wanting to teach us something that he has learned throughout the course of his life, through all of his mistakes and misguided attempts to find meaning and purpose in life apart from God being the center of it. And when he talks about that, he uses this phrase called under the sun, under the sun sun is the world that we create, the world apart from God, the world under the sun where we are. And so Solomon looks at pleasure and wealth and stuff and work and even his own wisdom. He says, all but apart from God under the sun becomes meaningless. Uh, Today we are actually going to finish out chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. So six weeks we've gone through two chapters. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I hope you don't feel like I'm going to be redundant today, but I am going to read to you most of chapter 2. I'll skip a couple things, but mostly read the entire thing because I want you to have this in context. If you are new, never been to Element before, you can get all of our previous messages online, ourelement.org. It's like I always say, you get what you pay for, they're free. (laughs) So you can go and listen to those. But hopefully reading this as context is going to take us to the place where we understand what Solomon is now getting to today. So Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1. He says, I said in my my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, interesting thing, when I was going through this, it kind of sparked my memory of this, but C.S. Lewis, he wrote a lot of good books, other than the Chronicles of Narnia, by the way. Uh, he wrote uh, this book that was called The Weight of Glory. It was actually transcribed out of one of his sermons and became a book. And if you're looking for a good book to read, read that. It's actually an excellent book. But in this book, he writes this, I didn't come to God to make me happy. I always always knew a bottle of port could do that. So it's kind of like what Solomon says. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, made, I bought male and female uh, slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. 
signs, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And what Solomon does there is he talks about different pleasures in life that he seeks after. Not that pleasure is bad, but if you seek pleasure only for its own sake, it will end up being meaningless. So then last week we talked about wisdom and madness and folly and how he seeks after his own wisdom. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise die just like the fool so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind uh, Blaise Pascal actually once wrote this he says all men seek happiness this is without exception whatever different means they employ they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views they will never take the least step but to this object this is the motive of every action of every man even those who hang themselves that everybody's looking for meaning and purpose and hope. And every time we try and find it in created things, it will never fulfill. That's where Solomon is going. And so this week what he does is he will now turn to the subject of work. Not that work is but Work is a good thing. I would want all of you to work. But if you try and find your meaning in life in work, it will also end up vexing you, as Solomon says, and you will find it to be meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. That's the word for work. They didn't work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So Solomon walks through all of these things in chapter 2 to get to the place, place to tell us that everything we seek apart from God under the sun is going to wind up in this same place of being meaningless. And so today we will talk about work and I just kind of want to start kind of in the beginning with this because in the beginning God makes everything good. God makes everything the right way and the right place, the right timing with him and peace with him and when sin enters the world through our own doing, through our own choice, we run away from God and rebel against him. God has the way he created things, and we don't want to live that way, and so we run away from him. That is called sin. It's rebellion against him. What we do in that point is we fractured God's peace, and sin enters the world, and the fracturing of this peace eventually actually affects our work as well. And so we call this where we run away from God and we fracture that peace. We call this the fall. That is where sin enters the world. Romans one twenty two and 23, Paul says this, 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul says is God is good, he's eternal, he is, he is gracious, and yet we have sought after the things he has created rather than God himself. We've run after the temporary things in our lives, the things that are under the sun, these fleeting pleasures, rather than what is eternal and soul satisfying, which is God himself. We seek after the temporary. Now, if you look in your life and you go back, say, 10 years in your life, you probably had a picture of what you wanted your life to be now, like 10 years later. And in our minds, we think if I could obtain that, if I could get that, well, then I'd be happier, I'd be more satisfied, whether this is a relationship, a job, a house, kids, getting kids out of the house, you know, whatever that is, we all look for something. Some people put everything they can into this 10-year goal and plan for their lives. And whether it's subconscious or consciously, we all tend to look forward to something. If you are type A, you probably write it down in a moleskin notebook with charts and graphs of all the things that you've accomplished and you highlight them and do all that. But for most people, it's just this idea of if I could get out of school, I would have this. Or if I could get a good job at this, if I could find a husband or a wife, if I could have children, if I could make enough money to go on vacation and actually enjoy it and not freak out the whole time if I spent too much, if I could get a car that ran half the time, if I could get this or I could get that, we're always running after something. And we have these ideas of goals. And as we start to get closer to those things, what typically happens is our goals change. Because we realize the closer we get, well, that's not really going to satisfy. And I may not actually even get there. So we have a different set of goals. And we start moving from one. you got one 10-year plan to a different 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 10-year plan. Then one day you die and they dress up like a clown and stick you in a box and burn you in the ground or burn you to a crisp, whatever your preference is. And what Solomon says is then he says, that is all meaningless. That's what he's trying to get you to see. He's trying to get you to move towards the place where you realize all the things we chase under the sun are a vexation, they're vapor, they're vanity. It's chasing wind. We are always chasing, never achieving, because we were never meant to find our full satisfaction in this world apart from God. And so when Adam and Eve are in this garden, God tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take this garden and make the rest of the entire earth like it. And our work was meant to be fulfilling and fun and life-giving. The garden is meant to be this prototype for everything else. And that would mean we go and build cultures that are based upon who God is and honoring Him and honoring one another and everything in creation. But as I said, instead what we do is we sin. They separated themselves from God, just like we still do today. And God is life, and God is our source of life. When we separate ourselves from Him and relationship with Him, we live in a place called death. And we do this. We are separated from Him. We separate ourselves from one another. We never really want to be known. And we hide ourselves. And we try and find, again, satisfaction in things and stuff and work. And it never, in the end, will satisfy And so when Adam and Eve fall, God makes some promises. Some people call them curses. I actually think it's a little bit of grace. And this is what he says to the man. He goes, goes, you're going to work the ground to provide for the family, and the ground is going to fight you. And it's interesting because God doesn't curse the man. He curses the ground under man, the, the dominion underneath him. And really, this is the idea when Solomon says, under the sun. It's what's under the man. And the curse, I think, is still in effect today because you can really have any job, and eventually you will get frustrated at that job. Something in that job is going to drive you crazy. You know, it's like, but if I just had this perfect job, it's going to be wonderful, but you get that job. And then you start to get frustrated with that job because you need a job because you got to make money to buy food and raise a family and do all of those things. And some people jump from one job to the next thinking it's going to satisfy, but it never does. Now, work can be satisfying, but work was never meant to be our ultimate satisfaction. Now, to the woman, what is cursed under the woman is what is directly in relation to her. And God talks about this. Your frustration will come from your husband and your children. <laughs> 
I know this is true, right? The thing that frustrates my wife more than anything in this world is this guy right here, right? Can you imagine being married to this? I am a, yeah, right? I am, a, I am opinionated. I am picky about food. I think I am always right. <laughs> you can ask her. She's in this service. She'll be like, yeah, that guy right there. He totally frustrates me. I mean, I know I can be hard to handle. Like some women are frustrated trying to find a dude. Some women are frustrated trying to get rid of a dude. <laughs> you know? And also what is under the dominion of the woman, and this isn't a sexist statement, but it's having children because women make the baby, right? It's, guys don't make the baby. Anyway, it, and God says it's going to be painful and hard in that. Now, I, I, know, I, I know some people who have, who have been to war and they fought and stuff, and if you listen to some women, they sound like vets in a vet hall. It's like 30 hours and blood and guts and this and that. It's like, oh, you can stop talking now. I got it. Okay, I, I'm good. Now, the question is, why would God do this? Why would God do this? And I think it's grace. I think it's grace. Because we would throw our hands up in frustration. And we would say, God, what's the deal? We would turn to him and say, what is going on here? That's grace. I think he does it because God loves us. That's why he does it. And it's better than any alternative. And we realize that all these things in the world are consequences of our own sin. But God is also a God who promises to bring a new creation, that he will lift the curse and give us redeemed bodies because God has always had a plan to rescue us. And now we can actually be less frustrated with the world around us because God has finally gotten our attention. This is what he has done in Ecclesiastes. Solomon is throwing his hands up in frustration, saying all the frustration he has, and saying, God, is what's the deal? He's exactly where God wants him to be. And when we throw our hands up in frustration, we're exactly where God wants us to be and say, what is going on with this? It's grace. It's God leading us always back to him. Solomon kind of summarizes this in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, so I hated life. And I told you the word hated right there. It refers to a foe, something you're fighting. Solomon is always fighting against the life that God gave him rather than resting in who God is and what God has called him to. With the curse and effect, we end up being frustrated with our jobs. We never really get our work done. We always long for the myth of retirement when I won't have to work anymore. Because there is never going to be a day when your inbox is completely empty. You empty your inbox, it's like shaving. It just goes right back. You mow your lawn, it grows back. You empty the hamper, there's clothes in that hamper. Again, nothing ever gets finished. And if you do retire, you're going to wake up without a job and still realize there's a lot I have to get done. And it's all toil. It's all labor. It's all work. Uh, Who has ever been frustrated with your job? You should all raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, you are a liar. Okay? We, we have all been frustrated with our job. And, and that's okay. You have to understand, that's, it's God leading us back to him. We, we have to understand, in the idea of being frustrated with our job, it's the idea of how God loves us. It's like, oh, but I don't understand. Yeah, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But nobody really goes to work for free. We, we all get paid because we know it frustrates us. Nobody's like, I'm addicted to filing. I just love to file. I'll go do it all day long. Nobody does that, right? It, no, nobody like says, hey, come and eat Cheetos and eat ice cream all day and we'll pay you. Because you do that for free, right? They pay you things because they're going to frustrate you. And so what I did through the first six weeks here is I gave you bits and pieces of Ecclesiastes. Because what I didn't want to do is give you all of those at once because you'd be really sad and depressed and I I didn't want you to have to need therapy just because you came to church service. So Ecclesiastes 1 through 11, Solomon looks at the boring rut of life. 
In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, he looks at his inability to straighten anything out himself. In chapter 2, 1 through 11, he talks about all the popular diversions associated with pleasure. In chapter 2, 12 through 17, he thinks how my great mind could have solved all these problems, and his great mind can't solve all the problems. And at the end of his life, this is what he says about work. Chapter 2, verse 18. And I hated my toil, again, the word for work, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. All my hard work goes to somebody who comes after me. Get a will. Anyway, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And our vernacular is, I worked really hard, but I'm going to die, and someone else is going to get all my stuff that I paid full price for, and either they'll get it in a will, or they'll buy it at a yard sale. And it stinks. And I understand this, where Solomon is at in his life, because I'm getting into my later 40s, and I feel like I've worked really hard, and I finally have... couple nice things, and sometimes my wife and I get to go on vacation, and it's great. But now I feel sometimes I am too old to enjoy some of the things that God has now placed in my hands, because now they might kill me. Like, like I would love to go parasailing or bungee jumping or, you know, riding dirt bikes over dunes. And, but I go over the dune and just disappear and never come back, because I'm old. That's what begins to happen when you get old. I feel like Solomon. Do you? Do you ever get there and feel like that? I finally got my stuff and now I'm dying. I don't even get to plug it in and someone else is going to get it. But please, Lord, not that guy because he's an idiot. It's like th- that's how we feel. Like don't raise your hands. But anybody have golf clubs you never use them? Anybody have a motorcycle that you never ride? Anybody buy a guitar? And it's like, I'm going to learn how to play guitar one day. It's going to be great. But everything in life gets so busy, you never learned how to play the guitar. I have some snowboards in my garage. I did not go snowboarding the last five years. I went this year. It is not like riding a bike, okay? I, I get to the top of the hill. I strap on my snowboard. I start going down, and it won't turn. I mean, this is weird. It is not going where I want it to go. I fall three times. The third time, I hit my wrist. It hurts all day long. I'm done for the day. My wife is like, it's because you're old. I'm like, I know I'm old. Just, my equilibrium gets off. I go off a jump, and for some reason, my head thinks it's the heaviest part of my body, and it falls straight down. That's why I wear a helmet. You know, it's, it's crazy. The older you get, the worse things get, and I can't enjoy any of the stuff that God has given me. <sighs> Thank you, Solomon, right? It's not cool. How much do you have of someone else's that maybe you got given to you or you bought at a yard sale dirt cheap? What I'm trying to say when Solomon talks about the fools getting this stuff, we're the fools. You're welcome. Chapter 2, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, didn't work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. They never put this on job message boards when they're looking to hire somebody, right? Looking for someone who, for minimal money, will suffer pain and toil all of their life apply within. Nobody says that, right? But that's kind of the truth. Solomon says our work is so consuming and frustrating at times that we are prone not only to give our days to it, but also our nights as well. I mean, have you ever thought about your job as you laid awake at night? I know I have about certain things at Element, because you guys are crazy. You know, sometimes I think, but I don't really lose sleep for a lot of things, but sometimes I do over you guys. 
Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes is going to run back and forth on this subject of work, about a vexation of it, but also in the end what it's really meant to be and enjoy your labor. And so he will talk about both of these things, and he does give some good principles for work. Like in Ecclesiastes 9.10, he will say, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's the grave, to which you are going. It's kind of depressing, but also a little uplifting, because he says, work hard unto God. That in this time, while we have here, while you're alive, what do you do? You go for it. You be wise and, and honest. That people who live in God's grace should work hard and should work well. Now, Solomon, he doesn't say why, but the Apostle Paul later does. And he says, you work that way because you're working for Jesus. That's why. True wisdom doesn't just do it because it's your job. It does it because you're working also for God in the midst of it. Whether it is pumping people with caffeine at Starbucks or teaching plate tectonics to grad students, whatever it is, you work it well because you're not working just for them. You're working for God himself. And he also will tell you in the book of Ecclesiastes that you work smarter, not always necessarily harder. Like Ecclesiastes 10.10, he will say, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. This is, you don't go to work with a dull axe if you need to chop down trees. You sharpen your axe before you go. You think things through with planning and wisdom. This goes for everything from finances to our home to all of our life. He says, you work hard, you work smart, you don't give up, trust God to make it work out. And what if you're born and if you die, what do you do in the middle of that? Well, we can. We just, we work well. Solomon says we should be so wise that we don't waste our time always trying to understand every nuance of life, but instead we stick close to God and we trust Him and enjoy Him in all things. But our problem is we typically spend too much time in our life trying to figure it out through our own wisdom or straighten out life through our work that we die before actually getting around to enjoy the life that God has placed within our hands. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat. That is a good verse, okay? So circle that. You ever circle something in your Bible? Circle that one right there. That's a good one. That you should eat. Now, I think when he talks about eating, this isn't something that's covered in cellophane and plastic that comes with its own utensils that you throw in the microwave. This isn't something you order through a speaker and a high school kid hands it to you through a window. This is good food, okay? Good food that he should eat and drink. There's another good one, right? Solomon says it's not the answer to life, but it can be part of your enjoyment. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment. Again, this that toil is the word for work there. You you might think, my job is dumb. My job will always know. It's always going to frustrate me. Great, great. Now you know that. You don't have to fight against that. You don't have to be perennially frustrated because you shouldn't expect heaven or God out of your work. You shouldn't expect heaven or God out of your food or out of a relationship with another person. What we do is we trust who God is and what he has given us. We work hard and well and begin to learn how to enjoy those things that he has placed in our lives. Because if you only eat garbage food and wine you buy at 7-Eleven at 3 a.m., you will be just like Solomon, sad and frustrated and irritated. You will begin to hate life. Verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me explain what this means. Everyone gets certain gifts from God. In Christianity, we call this common grace. God gives everyone gifts of life, food, drink, work. But in the end, it's the children of God who walk with him and place our hope and our life and our trust in who he is actually can enjoy and have satisfaction in the things that are around us because we realize our meaning in life doesn't come from our stuff. Our meaning in life comes from our God. 
So many people today run around, like I said, all the way back in week one, trying to find their life in their meaningless stuff. Satisfaction must come from God. We draw near to Him, He gives us satisfaction. So He says, but to the sinner, and in context of the book of Ecclesiastes, what this actually means is the person who wants to find satisfaction in life under the sun apart from God. That's what he's talking about. To the sinner, he has given the, busy, the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. That doesn't mean that they give you all their stuff. What it means is they're going to keep striving and searching and searching and searching. But it's the children of God who learn how to love what God has already placed in their hands who learn to have satisfaction in those things because we are satisfied first in our God. This isn't about who wins. It is about God's grace and a trusting of who he is in the midst of life's insurity. I mean, the summary of this whole first two chapters is, what are we pursuing to our own satisfaction? What are we pursuing to our own satisfaction? Jesus comes so we can have life in him, meaning in him. He dies in our place for our sin, what separates us from God and us and one another. He takes that away in himself. He rises from the grave. He offers us life and relationship with him again. This is new life, real life, true life, eternal life. And when we talk about eating, drinking, singing, laughing, and working, it's all meant to be practice for eternity. It's not meant to be our life now. It's practice what will go on into eternity. And it's beautiful. Now, I'm going to take a hard left turn here. I don't think it is, but you might think it is. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. I'm going to try and do something to bring these first six weeks all together for you in a way that kind of makes sense. In John chapter 4, Jesus is going through a place called Samaria. It's a place where Jews and rabbis just wouldn't go. He sits down at a well, and a woman comes to draw some water at this well. It's part of her work under the sun. When She does this, though, when all the other women are gone. Now, she does this because she had a bad reputation. She's been trying to find her satisfaction in many different relationships, and they all fell apart because nothing satisfied the brokenness that was within her soul. And essentially what she does is she will meet Jesus, and she's exchanging sex for rent at this place and time in her life. She's a complete social outcast. She probably didn't go to the well when the other women were there, because either they would have thrown rocks at her to try and kill her, or they would have beat her up or something like that. So in John chapter 4, verse 7, Jesus asks her for a drink of water from this well. And she's probably a little bit freaked out that a a man, a Jew, and a rabbi would do all this because they they never talked to her at all. But she hands him the water eventually. He takes a drink, and he starts talking to her about water. And he says, you know, I'm going to drink this, but I'm going to get thirsty again. She's like, you know, do you want another cup? He's like, no. It's my paraphrase. Uh, But go to verse 13 and 14. Okay? This is what Jesus then says. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he starts talking about water and he says, you know, people are going to come to this well day after day. In fact, the same women who are here this morning are going to come back tonight or tomorrow morning to get more water because they're going to need more water. And he says, if you drink the water I'm offering, you will never thirst again. What you have to understand about rabbis in this first century and even today in Jewish context is they will take metaphors of things that are around our lives and they will talk about how those things relate to the kingdom of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, this idea of water was the idea of water flows, eternal life, God's restoration, all of these beautiful things of what God would do when he brings his people back again. So this is what Jesus starts talking about. At first, she messes it. She misses it all together. At first, she's like, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get the water out of the well? But eventually, she starts to get it. He says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me help you to understand what this would look like in our lives. We are a people 
who are always thinking that something in this world is going to satisfy, make us feel whole, make us feel complete. And we keep running back to these things. We keep going to a well and putting our bucket in the well and pulling out water in our well. We keep doing that over and over and over and over and over. This is going to satisfy. This is going to satisfy. This is going to satisfy. And it doesn't. And sometimes we will even go to Jesus and we will say, Jesus, I love you. I will follow you. Uh, Give me more water in my bucket. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter the water that is in your bucket. It is not about that water. It is about what I want to give you. And too often we use Jesus to try and put more water in the bucket of the thing we're looking for. And Jesus says, stop looking in the bucket. Trust me for eternal life. Trust me for what I am bringing, for what I am doing. This is what he says to this woman who's been trying to find herself in all of these plus places that he is eternal. And what he brings is what life is truly about. He says, when you find your life in me, you will actually get satisfaction, but it's a byproduct of new and true and real life that's found in me. To this woman, it would be like saying, all those men that have taken advantage of you for all of these years, all those people who have belittled you, all the places you've tried to fill your soul, and you've ended up feeling more broken and feeling more worthless and shame and guilt over and over and over, I can come. And this can all be over for you because you can find true soul satisfaction in me. I can restore you to be a child of God. I can bring redemption and restoration to you. You don't have to continue to go to the well day after day trying to find something to fill your soul. I will bring you satisfaction under the sun. I can redeem you. I can restore you. That's what Jesus says. You never have to thirst again. That's what he says. Now, I am not saying outside of Jesus, no one can have a good work life or a good marriage. People have said that, and I think, quite frankly, they're actually wrong. It's possible. But the truth is, you may end up being a good husband or a good wife or a good boss or a good coworker, but you will never know the fullness of what a marriage or what work was meant to be apart from Christ. You will always be searching for something else to fulfill because it's not really full in your life. I think it is only those who have fully submitted their lives to Christ that have the full knowledge and know what life is truly meant to be. That we were not created for us. We're not created for the things. We're not even created for each other. We were created for God because God himself is good. It's like you miss the fullness of it. Like you you can get some goodness out of it without Christ under the sun, but you'll never know what the fullness could be. It is like lucky charms without the milk. All right? The, the marshmallows are still good, right? It is like, it is like those, those low-calorie Oreos where they take out most of the filling in the middle, right? The outside cookie is still good, but it is not what it could be with the double stuff, right? It's like, it's like Kung Pao without the pow. You just get the Kung. You need the pow. It is, it's like a cold cinnamon roll, right? They're good, right? But you ever had a warm cinnamon roll? Gooey coming out of the oven? It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, okay, it's not about the cinnamon roll, obviously. This is, this is my, I'm a rabbi. That's, that's your metaphor, okay? That's what you get. But it's, it's about relationship with God. That's what it is. We seek all these things, and sometimes we find some goodness in those things because those things are good, because God made them to be good. But it's not the fullness of what it could be. I love how God speaks about salvation because when God speaks about it, it's amazing. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, God says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. See, there it is. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, to, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. 
God says, how long are you going to buy bread that doesn't satisfy you? How long are you going to take your bucket and keep dipping it in the well over and over and over and over, thinking that if you get enough water one day, you're going to stop being thirsty? And it will never, ever happen. How long will you run after things that will never fulfill you? God then gives this invitation. I think it echoes out to the woman at the well, and she gets it. I think it echoes out of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. I think it echoes all the way to us, where God says, Come to me, come and eat my bread, come drink my wine, come sit at my table, come partake in the richest fare, come and be filled. And that right there is the promise of the gospel, that we get to come and be filled, that God is good, that God has restored us, that we run after all these things that are not him. And what does God do? calls us back to himself, seeks us out. Because when God says, even says, come to me, we typically aren't a people who can even come to him because we're so fixated on our bucket in the well trying to get more water out of the well. And so God says, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to call you to me. Jesus shows up at the well where the woman's getting the water to talk about eternal life to say, stop looking in the well. Look here. And that's what he does for us. This is one of the reasons that Element, every week, we come to the place where I bring you to a place of communion after every message. It's meant to be a place where we set our focus where it is meant to be, not on our bucket dumping in the well, but on the God who has rescued and saved us. This is why you break a cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents his blood that was shed for you and me as a people to bring us back into relationship with again. That God is our rescuer. God is our savior. God is the one who brings meaning and hope and purpose to our lives. We don't come to him to say, okay, now I've got you. Now give me this thing for satisfaction and meaning. We come to him because he is the satisfaction and meaning. And everything else comes as a byproduct when we trust him with all that we are and we surrendered all we are to all that he is, our gracious rescuer and savior. The band's going to come up. And they're in here, there they are, the three of them. I called the band. Our honky-tonk hoedown. Uh, they're back here. Um, and I'm going to invite you to take communion. We don't pass communion around the room. It's, it's a response to what God's doing and working in your heart. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you just keep dipping your bucket into this well over and over and over, thinking it's going to satisfy and it never does, and you are perennially frustrated with your life because nothing works out, well, be like Solomon and come to the place where you throw your hands up and go, God, what's the deal? And God, I think, honors that. And he will start to reveal himself to you in a way that shows you his grace and his goodness and his hope and his new life. Our God is a rescuer. And we will never, ever know true and full life satisfaction apart from our lives being completely surrendered to who he is. Or he becomes Lord and King and God and Master of our lives. But in the beauty of all that, he also becomes friend and Savior and Redeemer and hope. Our God is good. And he is called to us. And when he says, come to me, you with no money, come and buy and drink. Because we don't have anything that we could buy anything from him with. So God comes and pays for it himself to bring us back in. He pays for all of the sins that we have committed that have separated ourselves from him and each other. To draw us back into life with him again. And I would encourage you today, if you have been frustrated in your life, that you would allow that to be God's grace working in you to draw your heart back to who he is and to begin to love him and come to the waters to drink what he offers you in grace and hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning...
I ask that you would remind us who you are of your grace and your hope that is given to us. I'd ask that we remember in all the things that we do, even today with the ideas of of giving or food outside, that we remember that all the things that we do are simply because of what you have first done for us. That we would come to a place where we see our hope of redemption and life, not in the things that we find in our hands or in our homes or in our workplaces, but we'd find ourselves first and foremost finding all that we need in who you are. And then that would begin in turn to change how we see everything around us. That our relationships would change. That we would begin to love others because you have first loved us. That we would love our family and our friends better because we would understand your love first given to us. That we would honor you in all things. Because you are our fount of living water the hope of our lives, that you are our great rescuer and redeemer, and that you have come to draw us back into relationship with you so we could live in ways that bring great glory to who you are and that we could actually live in a fulfillment of understanding the great gifts that you have placed within our hands. And that we would give and love and serve because you have first done those things for us. That you would so change us to be a people so enamored by your grace. That we would begin to worship you in our daily lives and everything that we do. From our conversations to the things that we watch to the things that we put into our bodies. That everything we do would be redefined because of you. And that we would have the satisfaction that we're looking for because it's not in things, it is in you. And we would trust you for that great hope and great grace. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.